This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're starting off season six with a new series. In each episode this month, I'll share a case of a person who goes missing, never to be seen again. Just when it seems that the secret of their fate would remain buried, the truth would be uncovered. This is chapter one of the series, Buried Truth, Russell Tillis and the House of Horrors. Russell David Tillis was a menace. His behavior was so problematic that neighbors living on Bowden Circle East, located in Southside Jacksonville, Florida, called him the neighbor from hell. By 2016, they had been living with constant harassment, verbal abuse, and even threats of physical violence from Tillis, and had reached their limit. Russell Tillis had moved back into the family home his parents had owned since the 1970s. After his mother died, Tillis took over the deed and lived alone in the 1,000-square-foot residence that sat on a large lot in the middle of the block. The yard and home became cluttered and fell into disrepair after Tillis took it over. He also built an 8-foot-tall privacy fence that caused that section of the block to resemble an armed camp. This, perhaps, they could have lived with if it wasn't for all the late-night noise and odd and scary behavior by their 55-year-old neighbor. While everyone had a different tale to tell about their scary run-ins with Russell Tillis, they all agreed that the problems began soon after his mother Margie died in 2012. Margie, estranged from Russell's father, had become ill with terminal cancer. A few months before her death, she deeded the home at 3551 Bowden Circle East to her son Russell. Russell grew up in the home and lived there off and on as a teen and young adult. He'd come back to live with his mother during her final days, but didn't start harassing his neighbors until after her death. It's not clear if neighbors first tried to approach Tillis and were rebuffed, or if they began by alerting authorities to the myriad building violations on his property and other issues. Several ramshackle outbuildings began appearing on the Tillis lot the main house began to fall into disrepair. Junk was hauled onto the lot, creating an eyesore. Old broken-down equipment, car parts, and garbage was dumped haphazardly. City building inspectors made Tillis take down one illegally built structure on this property, and Tillis blamed his, quote, nosy neighbors for this. That's when he placed a tall fence and a gate with a padlock in front of his home. Later, he began draping large tarps over the gates that hid his home and yard. Tillis began a campaign of harassment upon his neighbors. One night, the sound of a loud air horn began blasting all night long at periodic intervals and into the wee hours. A police report was made, but by the time officers arrived, Tillis was nowhere to be found. He also installed security cameras and lighting on his property, pointing the cameras towards his neighbors' homes. Motion sensor lights were configured so that when they were tripped, the bright lights shone directly into their windows. 
Tillis would stand on scaffolding installed in his yard to stare at his neighbors going about their business on their own property. It was also reported that he began prowling around the neighborhood at night. Tillis accosted his neighbors verbally, making accusations and threats. When they emerged from their homes to pick up their mail or take out their garbage cans, he yelled profanities at them and called them names. He began calling one female neighbor, Wart Face, and threatened to cut it off her face. This woman reported Tillis for spilling nails on her driveway. In 2014, a neighbor filed an order of protection against Tillis after he exposed himself to her as she drove past his house. He targeted the wife of a man whom he'd argued with previously, following her one day as she drove to her job. As she exited her car, he approached and taunted her, saying that, quote, she might not make it home that night. He retaliated against another neighbor by harassing her granddaughter, flashing bright lights into her bedroom window. Police were called about Tillis's behavior over 80 times between 2012 and 2015. Court records show that residents pleaded with officers to arrest Tillis, and restraining orders were filed. Tillis's response was to taunt and threaten his neighbors even more, saying that he, quote, owned the neighborhood and could do whatever he wanted, end quote. Sometimes he went even further, telling one neighbor who threatened to call the police, quote, call them because your ass is mine tonight. Residents didn't take his threats lightly. They knew Russell Tillis had a criminal history from the time he was a boy and had spent time in prison. They were intimidated and downright scared of what he might do. He bragged to them that he'd learned everything he needed to know about the law while he was in prison. Tillis even filed counterclaims against his neighbors, saying they were harassing him. In one order of protection he filed, Tillis alleged that the neighbor, quote, has been willfully, maliciously, and repeatedly harassing me by engaging in a series of acts that serve no legitimate purpose and cause me emotional distress, end quote. This position was denied by the court after Tillis failed to appear for the hearing. In February 2015, Tillis was arrested for stalking a neighbor. He was convicted on this charge and served a week in jail. He reportedly scoffed at this, saying that the threat of prison didn't deter him. He even went so far as to say, quote, if I go back to prison, it's worth it, implying he'd get his revenge first. Neighbors began avoiding him at all costs, even dreading short ventures outside to pick up their newspapers or get into their vehicles. Tillis took every opportunity to intimidate and threaten them. Then they began hearing and witnessing even more suspect activities occurring at Tillis's home. Some reported that Tillis had women who appeared to be sex workers coming and going from the property. More than once, screams were heard from behind Tillis's tarped gates. One neighbor claimed to have seen a naked woman running from Tillis's property and calling out for help. Another reported seeing a woman chained to Tillis's fence. No police reports could be found to verify these claims. Neighbors claimed that police were called about the chained woman, but they merely told Tillis to let her go, and two men arrived shortly after to pick her up. It may be useful at this point to tell you a little about Russell Tillis's background and criminal history. Russell David Tillis was born on April 22, 1961. Called Rusty by his family, Tillis grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. His father, Claude Sr., was a crane operator who was employed on site at Walt Disney World during its initial construction. 
Whether Russell's father took him and his brother Claude II, called Bubba, to the new amusement park is unknown, but it's unlikely. According to reports, Claude Sr. was an angry alcoholic prone to violence. It's also alleged that Claude Sr. sexually abused both of his sons and abused the boy's mother physically. According to an ex-girlfriend who lived with Tillis in the early 1980s and gave birth to his son, Tillis's mother Margie used to lock her sons inside a trailer at night to keep their father from abusing them. Tillis also revealed to her that he had been molested by other family members as well. Neighbors of the Tillises said that the family lived in the Bowden Circle East home beginning in the 1970s. They reported often hearing loud, angry voices behind the Tillises' closed doors. Margie Tillis was said to be a wonderful woman, but her husband was another story. They were afraid of Claude Sr., just like neighbors would come to fear his son Russell years later. Growing up in an alcoholic and abusive home, Russell Tillis began acting out by stealing, drinking, and using drugs. He skipped school frequently, spending his time instead prowling the neighborhood and breaking into homes and cars. Although described as bright, Tillis dropped out of school by the ninth grade. He spent time in juvenile detention facilities and was placed for a time in a school for troubled kids. Upon reaching the age of 18, Tillis left Florida and moved to California. In 1981, when Tillis was 20, he began dating a 16-year-old named Shannon Brinkley. She became pregnant and gave birth at age 17 to a son. Tillis and Shannon lived together briefly, and Tillis worked in construction. Soon after the baby was born, Shannon discovered that Tillis was using drugs. He'd begun selling methamphetamines and then using the drug as well. Shortly thereafter, Shannon left Tillis. She not only objected to his drug use, but worried about her own son being raised by Tillis. He'd described his own upbringing with a violent alcoholic father who abused him both physically and sexually, and according to him, a racist grandfather who paid Russell to beat up African Americans. Tillis was often angry and had his own substance abuse issues, and Shannon was afraid of what kind of father he'd be to their son. Tillis's brother would later confirm that Russell became hooked on crack cocaine in the 1980s. Arrests for theft and drug possession soon followed, and by the 1990s, the now 30-year-old began spending most of his life behind bars. Between 1994 and 2012, Russell Tillis was charged with nine different felony convictions and was incarcerated in state prisons four times. Charges included soliciting prostitution, burglary, child abuse, grand theft, kidnapping, and assault and sexual battery. He served one prison sentence from 1994 to 1998 and was sent back less than six months after his release, serving another year for a parole violation. Two years later, he was locked up once again, this time for four years on different charges. Tillis remained out of prison for a couple of years before being arrested again in November of 2007. The previous year, he had picked up a teenage girl and offered her a ride home after she was left stranded during a night out with friends. Instead of taking her home, he drove her to a secluded area and forced her to perform oral sex after hitting her in the face. He threatened to kill her if she didn't comply. She was terrified and told him that she was a sex worker, hoping this lie would deter him from killing her afterward. Her plan worked, she said, because later when he dropped her off in the street, he threw $40 at her and said they should, quote, do this again. The girl was only 14 years old. She'd never seen Tillis before and couldn't identify him, 
but was able to give a description to a police sketch artist. More than a year and a half after her attack, Russell Tillis was identified through DNA testing. He was arrested and charged with two counts of lewd or lascivious battery upon a minor. He would later plead guilty to the charge of felony child abuse, for which he was given a five-year prison sentence. He was released in 2012 and returned to his parents' home in Florida. Margie Tillis was not doing well when her son, recently sprung from prison, returned to her home. She had been diagnosed with cancer and was very ill. She had divorced her abusive husband, but he continued to insist that they reconcile. The stress of dealing with an overbearing and violent ex-husband, who was now partially confined to a wheelchair, was taking an even greater toll on her health. When Russell returned, he was not happy that his father was still hanging around. Russell had a deep hatred for his father, and now that he was an adult with his own violent streak, putting these two together was like lighting a fuse attached to a stick of dynamite. Neighbors began hearing loud arguing and fighting coming from the Tillis home between father and son. Claude Sr. was known to ride around in a motorized wheelchair, often brandishing a weapon, a knife, machete, or shotgun. Shortly after Russell Tillis was released from prison, police were called to the Tillis home at 3551 Bowden Circle East. But this time, the call was made by Russell Tillis. In March 2012, Tillis reported that the previous evening, his father had threatened his brother's life. When he'd heard about this, Tillis went to the home to deal with the situation himself. When Tillis confronted his father, Claude Sr. allegedly pulled out a knife and threatened to stab him. His father was angry, Tillis said, because he blamed his sons for meddling between him and their mother, whom he insisted were trying to, quote, get back together. Claude Sr. would later tell a reporter that his son Russell threw him out of his own home when he and his wife were trying to reconcile. Both Russell and Claude Jr. filed an order of protection against their father. Russell's petition was approved, and as far as I can tell, his father never returned to the home. Two months later, Margie Tillis deeded the house on Bowden Circle East to her son Russell. A month later, Margie died after losing her battle with cancer at the age of 69. And as we've already learned, it was after Russell Tillis took over the home that all the trouble in the neighborhood began. By 2014, Russell Tillis had been served with orders of protection by his neighbors for his harassing and threatening behavior. Refusing to comply with injunctions to stay away from his neighbors, he continued to stalk and harass them. In February of 2015, he was arrested for violating a court order. Tillis pled guilty to stalking and spent seven days in jail. This still did not deter him, and he continued to intimidate and threaten others. On May 18, 2015, Jacksonville PD arrived at Tillis's home to serve two outstanding warrants for these violations. Officers had arrived earlier in the day in an attempt to pick Tillis up on the warrant, but he was able to slip away. They returned after dark, deciding on a ploy to lure him out of his home and catch him unaware. One officer tossed rocks onto Tillis's roof to draw him outside where they would be waiting to arrest him. Instead, moments later, a motion sensor light clicked on. That's when officers saw Tillis running from a neighbor's yard and around the side of his own house. They called out for him to stop, identifying themselves as police officers. As the officers gave chase, Tillis turned toward them brandishing two knives. 
He then changed direction and began running towards his home. Officers gave pursuit through the yard after Tillis, but they quickly realized they had fallen into a trap. Tillis had booby-trapped his property, placing boards on the ground hidden in the overgrown foliage. The boards had four-inch nails protruding from them. As he gave chase, one officer's foot was impaled on one of these improvised devices. They would later discover that Tillis had also nailed razor blades with their sharp edges sticking out from trees and bushes on the property. Tillis was arrested and charged with resisting arrest, assaulting an officer, aggravated assault, and criminal mischief. But first, he was sentenced to serve two years and four months in the Duval County Detention Center for the violation of previous court orders. Russell Tillis had a long police record and had spent years behind bars for a series of drug offenses and violent crimes, including sexual attacks on women. As he sat in jail for charges stemming from intimidating, threatening, and harassing his neighbors, residents of Bowden Circle East breathed a sigh of relief. After nearly four years, they finally got a break from Russell Tillis. But they dreaded the day he would be released and returned to the neighborhood. Tillis was sitting in the Duval County Detention Center with a two-year sentence for violating previous protection orders filed by his neighbors, as well as stalking, making threats, and criminal mischief. But he was still awaiting charges to be filed against him for resisting arrest and assault of an officer, charges which could earn him another 15 to 30 years behind bars. In the county lockup, other inmates discovered that Russell Tillis was known as something of a jailhouse lawyer and sought out his help. Tillis had spent much of his time in the law library during the already four prison sentences he had served. Although he dropped out of school at an early age, Tillis was bright and motivated enough to study the law to help in his own defense. So he learned to write up and file motions with the court. He also found that other inmates sought out his help and advice for their own cases and would pay him for his expertise, usually in the form of snacks or other items inmates could purchase from the jail commissary. One inmate who asked for Tillis's help was 32-year-old Samuel Ortega Evans. Evans was facing serious prison time for participating in an armed robbery. He had written up a legal motion on his case and asked Tillis to look it over. Tillis did so, and Evans paid him for his help. Evans had had some trouble in his past, for which he was now paying the price, but he was a soft-spoken and polite young man. He had become a person of faith, and was one of the more serious and even-killed men on the unit, or pod, he was assigned to in the county jail. Tillis was assigned to the same pod, and while they weren't friends, they exhibited a mutual respect for one another. Perhaps this is why Tillis decided to approach Sammy Evans, a relative stranger, in February of 2016 to ask him a question. Evans was still waiting for his case to be adjudicated, but because of the seriousness of the charges and his previous record, he knew he could be looking at a lengthy prison sentence. Knowing this, Tillis asked Evans if he thought it might be beneficial to him if he offered to cooperate with the district attorney on a homicide case. Evans was confused and asked what Tillis meant. Tillis said that he could give Evans information about a murder if he would agree to share the information with the authorities. Evans was to act as if he had gone behind Tillis's back to turn over this information. Tillis told Evans he could provide information about where a body was buried. Evans was skeptical and said he'd need more details. Soon after this first conversation, Tillis met with Evans again and provided these details. 
He said a woman had been murdered and was buried on his property. He drew a map to show Evans where the body could be found in his own backyard. Evans agreed to write a letter and send it to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department. Upon receiving the letter, the Sheriff's Office called in Evans for questioning. Evans brought in the map that he had redrawn in his own hand and handed it to the Sheriff. He shared what Tillis had told him about a woman whose body could be found buried on his property. Tillis hadn't identified the woman by name, Evans said, but had disclosed that she'd been murdered and dismembered before being buried. Evans was asked if he'd be willing to wear a wire in order to get more information from Tillis so they could investigate this claim. Evans agreed. He did not tell the police that Tillis himself had coordinated this confession. He returned to the county jail with a recording device concealed in his clothing. When Tillis entered his cell, Evans gave a note to him to inform him that he was wearing a wire. Tillis read it and nodded his understanding. Tillis then began to talk in detail about women, mostly sex workers, whom he said he'd brought to his home on Bowden Circle East. He said many of these women were drug addicts and that he'd used their vulnerability to victimize them. He described a soundproof room he'd built in his home where he would imprison these women after they passed out from drugs and alcohol. Tillis claimed he would then sell them to other men for sex and pocket the profits. He then described how one woman was killed and then dismembered with a power saw. He said he'd buried her in his yard. Tillis went into so much detail to describe this gruesome crime that Sammy Evans, once skeptical, now said he believed his story. It was too specific to be made up, Evans said. The audio recording of Tillis's confession was almost three hours long. Evans turned the tape over to the police, and a search warrant was issued for Tillis's property. In the exact area that he had described, investigators found bones that appeared to be human. An excavator was brought onto the property, and after three days of digging, the nearly complete remains of a female were discovered buried in three separate holes in Tillis's backyard. To determine the identity of the victim, investigators sent bone samples to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification. The day after remains were found on Russell Tillis's property, detectives interviewed him about the discovery. They were not yet aware that it had been Tillis himself who asked Evans to tip off the police about the body. But once he was in the room being questioned by investigators, Tillis clammed up. He refused to answer any questions and said he had no idea how a body had ended up on his property. He then asked for an attorney. Results from DNA testing were finally returned in December, and the victim's identity was confirmed as 30-year-old Joni Lynn Gunter. Joni, originally from Gainesville, Florida, was born on July 27, 1984. Joni had a tough life from the beginning. She and her two siblings, Ashley and Robert, were placed in foster care when they were still very young. When she was 10, Joni's mother died, and the children's father had not been in contact with them for several years. Joni and her siblings ended up separated after being placed with different families. Joni would eventually move to Jacksonville to live with an aunt. Her brother, Robert, would later report that Joni became addicted to drugs and, as a young woman, fell into prostitution. After this, her family lost track of her. Joni Gunter had a record of arrests for prostitution and drug offenses in Duval County between 2004 and 2011 and had no fixed address during this time. Her sister would see her for the last time in 2014 when Joni was staying at a motel in downtown Jacksonville. 
Joni Lynn Gunter had two children who were being raised by others at the time of her death. The last documented report of Joni being alive was in April of 2015, when she was served papers by the court regarding child support for her children. After that, she disappeared. Investigators would state that Joni frequented the same areas around Jacksonville where Russell Tillis was often seen. Tillis had a history of picking up sex workers in the area, and it was believed that this was most likely how he met Joni Gunter. Autopsy reports would determine that she had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. She had several injuries to her skull, consistent with hammer blows, according to the coroner. She also had fractures to her arms, leading investigators to believe that she had tried to protect herself during the attack. Detectives recorded her murder as occurring sometime between mid-April and early May 2015. Her obituary would list her date of death as February 11, 2016, the day her remains were recovered. Russell Tillis was now charged with second-degree murder, kidnapping, and abuse of a corpse. On December 8, 2016, a press conference was held to announce the identity of the dismembered body found almost a year earlier buried in his backyard as Joni Lynn Gunter. Tillis's home was dubbed the House of Horrors by the media after learning of the grisly discovery. Investigators listed other ominous-seeming items recovered from the property. Dozens of knives, power tools, chains, containers of acid, and an axe. Rusted and broken blades from a reciprocating saw were also found lying in the yard. Photos taken inside the home showed it to be cluttered and dirty and falling into disrepair. On March 1st, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office released a photo of an unidentified woman found among Tillis's possessions. On the recording police had obtained of Tillis's jailhouse confession, he can be heard saying that if police excavate the property to look for the body, then, quote, that one is probably going to lead to the other two, end quote. Investigators now believe Tillis may have multiple victims buried on his property. They asked the public for help in identifying the mystery woman in the photo. Her identity remains unknown. No other remains were discovered after a thorough search of the property. Tillis used all his legal knowledge to cause delay after delay and keep his murder trial from moving forward. He fired his state-appointed attorneys three times, resulting in the date for the commencement of the trial to be pushed back for weeks or months each time. He even attempted to get the judge thrown off the case. In addition, he accused his defense attorney in the police assault case of ineffective assistance. He claimed she was assisting the prosecution in his conviction rather than focusing on his defense. He further claimed that she, quote, would become physically flirtatious, using her sexuality as a means to subdue the defendant's requests, end quote. Tillis' assault case was set to begin in November of 2016, but was postponed until February 2017 due to a change in attorneys. The court was set to hear the case against Tillis on the charges of aggravated assault on a law enforcement officer, battery on a law enforcement officer, resisting arrest with violence, and criminal mischief. These charges could carry a maximum 30-year prison sentence. But a mistrial was declared after Tillis's attorneys presented evidence that prosecutors failed to provide documents pertinent to their defense. The new trial was set to begin in October, but before it did, Tillis entered a plea of guilty to third-degree felony assault on a police officer. Instead of the 15 to 30 years he may have faced, 
Tillis was sentenced to time served. While Tillis's neighbors were dismayed that he once again seemed to skate on serious charges, the prosecution pointed out that the defendant would remain behind bars and soon be tried on second-degree murder. They had made the deal on the assault case in order to begin the murder trial in which they planned to seek the death penalty. Although Tillis had been the one to orchestrate his own demise by knowingly allowing himself to be recorded giving incriminating statements, he now gave an interview to a Jacksonville reporter in which he claimed that, quote, dirty cops had framed him for the murder. He gave a second interview in August of 2018 to Heather Crawford of WTLV News. In that interview, Tillis claimed that he had no clue who the woman buried on his property was and insisted he had never murdered anyone. When asked if he had any responsibility for the body found buried in his yard, he answered, that remains to be seen in the future. The newswoman described Tillis as very intelligent, very controlling, and careful with everything he says. Around the same time, his brother Claude was also interviewed by reporters. Claude called his younger brother evil and said, quote, I'm scared to death of him, and you know, I hate to say it because he's my brother, but he scares me. On March 22, 2021, five years after Joni Lynn Gunter's remains were found buried in Russell Tillis's yard, his trial for her murder finally began. The trial, which had originally been scheduled to begin in August of 2020, had been delayed multiple times due to the COVID outbreak. In late 2020, over 400 summonses were sent out in an effort to seat a grand jury to hear the case. Only 14 people responded. Prosecutor Alan Mazzari relentlessly pursued the case until he was finally able to impanel a jury and begin opening arguments. The trial was beset with drama, mostly due to the behavior of the defendant. Tillis would have outbursts in court, sometimes insisting that he wanted to act as his own attorney before changing his mind and allowing the proceedings to resume. The prosecution had in their favor Tillis's audio-recorded statements of guilt. It was their theory that Tillis had long preyed upon vulnerable women, many of whom were addicted to drugs and or sex workers who, like Joni Lynn Gunter, might not be missed by family or friends right away. They put a witness on the stand to demonstrate for the jury Tillis's alleged pattern of violence against women. The woman said she had been a sex worker and addicted to drugs when she met Tillis. He had offered her the use of his home to store some of her belongings and a place to shower. In early 2014, she testified that she had been at Tillis's home and had passed out after doing heroin. She and Tillis did drugs together, she said, but they did not have a sexual relationship. But that day when she awoke, she discovered her leg had been chained to a bed. Tillis then beat and raped her. Afterward, he angrily and violently dragged her by the chain outside and into his yard, telling her he was going to leave her tied up like a dog until she, quote, learned what he wanted. When he brought her back into the house, the chain was still around her leg, but she discovered that the padlock was not completely locked. She waited for Tillis to fall asleep and then made her escape. She had not reported the incident to the police. The jailhouse audio recording was compelling evidence of Tillis's involvement in the murder, and his defense knew they would have to come up with a strong argument to counteract its impact on the jury. On April 8, 2021, Russell Tillis took the stand to tell his side of the story. In the recording, Tillis is heard telling Sammy Evans that after he had Joni Gunter locked in a room in his home, he began allowing men to pay him to rape her. He said his brother Claude arrived to have sex with her too, but, quote, freaked out when she recognized him. 
Tillis accused his brother of frequenting sex workers around Jacksonville. Upon realizing that Joni could identify him, according to Tillis, Claude said, you gotta kill that bitch. Tillis can be heard saying that his brother talked him into killing her, quote, but I told him, you gotta cut her up. That will take like three or four hours, and I'm not doing it, end quote. On the stand, Tillis contradicted what he'd said on the tape. Now he told jurors, Joni Gunter arrived at my residence in the trunk of my brother's car, and she was deceased. How she met her death, I have no clue. To explain why he had provided this confession to Evans and instructed him to pass it along to investigators, Tillis now claimed that because he was looking at a possible 30-year sentence for assaulting a police officer, he was depressed and despondent. He decided he would rather die than spend three decades behind bars. So, Tillis said, he and Evans concocted a story that was sure to shock and horrify the public, enough to ensure that prosecutors would seek the death penalty and jurors would impose the harshest sentence. In other words, Tillis said, it was an attempt to commit, quote, suicide by the state in order to avoid a lengthy prison sentence. But now, Tillis told the jury, he was telling the truth. It was his brother that had killed the girl. He had only helped to bury her body. He could point the cops to the location of the victim's body, and he believed this information would be enough to convince investigators of his guilt. As you can imagine, this story was looked upon with more than a little skepticism by the jury. After Tillis's testimony and cross-examination ended, the trial came to a close. The jury deliberated for five hours before returning guilty verdicts for the charges of premeditated murder, kidnapping, and abuse of a corpse. They found him not guilty of the human trafficking charge. Tillis was indeed facing possible execution. A week later, the sentencing hearing began. Two more women testified for the state, detailing their violent run-ins with the defendant. One woman testified that in 1989, her car had broken down, and Tillis, a stranger, stopped and offered to look at it for her. After examining her motor, he told her he couldn't fix it, but offered her a ride to the phone. She accepted. Tillis drove her to a nearby construction site where he put his hands around her throat and began choking her. Luckily, two men who worked at the site drove into the parking lot in the nick of time. When Tillis saw their headlights, he started the car and began to drive off. The woman said she was able to open the passenger door. She rolled out of the moving car to get away. The second woman to testify at the sentencing hearing was the girl who had been just 14 when she was offered a ride by Tillis and then attacked. Both women testified that they had feared for their lives and felt lucky to have survived their encounters with the defendant. During Tillis's trial, it was also revealed that he had been married once for nine years and also had a daughter. They had divorced in 1997. The woman, who asked to remain anonymous, said that during her marriage to Tillis, there were, quote, a lot of beatings, pushing, shoving. He put a gun to my head. She also testified that she was subjected to rape and mental, physical, and psychological abuse by Tillis. The defense, hoping to spare their client from a death sentence, tried to cast Tillis in a sympathetic light, saying, quote, Russell Tillis is a damaged, badly broken individual, but not beyond redemption. Tillis's attorney detailed the abuse his client had suffered as a child and young man and said Tillis had been, quote, poisoned by the violence that he witnessed, that he endured both sexual and physical, and also the drugs that he used, end quote. The prosecutor ended by reminding jurors of the grisly details of his crime. What happened at 3551 Bowden Circle was shockingly evil, the prosecutor said. It was heinous, atrocious, and cruel. 
We are confident that you will hold him fully accountable and do what the facts in this case require, and that is to vote unanimously for a sentence of death. Sentence of death. Russell Tillis's life was spared by a slim margin. The vote to send Tillis to death row was split 9 to 3. Because Florida law requires the imposition of the death penalty to be a unanimous decision, Tillis was instead sentenced to life in prison. Joni Lynn Gunter's sister Ashley said this about her sister's killer, I hope he rots. About Joni, she said, whatever her past, she did not deserve that. She was good-hearted. She helped people whenever she could, even though she was arrested for things and what she did. She was very sweet. But she said she was relieved because, quote, I know where she is now and in a safe place. She doesn't have to suffer anymore. Joni's family, she said, could always have her close to them now. Joni's ashes were placed inside lockets that they each wore. Investigators reported that they had found no indication of Tillis's brother Claude being involved in Joni's murder or even any evidence that he had ever met her. Had ever met her. 3551 Bowden Circle East, the House of Horrors, was condemned while Tillis sat awaiting trial. The buildings were razed to the ground and hauled away, leaving only an empty lot. The property was sold by Tillis to Janice Eldridge, his state-appointed private investigator who worked on his case. In 2019, a house was built on the property, and it has since been purchased by a new owner. You may be wondering, as I was, what was Tillis's endgame in orchestrating a taped confession of his own involvement in a murder and then turning around to insist that he was innocent? I'll admit, it was a bit of a head-scratcher for me, too. Most news reports of this case leave out the part about Tillis being aware that the information he provided was being recorded by the police. Articles only state that a jailhouse informant tipped off investigators and then wore a wire to record Tillis's admission of guilt. But after watching Sammy Evans' testimony in court, I realized that there was a twist to this story. So what was I to make of this odd detail? By all accounts, Tillis was a person who was extremely controlling and manipulative. During his neighborhood reign of terror, he often stated that he, quote, owned the neighborhood and could do whatever he wanted. Before he was tried on the murder charge, he successfully tied up the court for years, demanding or objecting to one thing or another. Tillis, it is clear, enjoyed the power and control he wielded in court with his neighbors and with women, both in his relationships and those he victimized. Everything he did, those who knew him said, was carefully and deliberately planned in order for him to be in control. A former FBI agent was asked by Action News Jax to analyze letters they received from Tillis. Former Special Agent Dale Carson studied them and reported that the clear handwriting tight margins, numbered pages, and formal subject line Tillis included in his letters suggested that he had put a lot of thought and preparation into his communication with the news station. Carson says, quote, He has created himself in a controlling position where he is now the victim. He's innocent. He needs to be interviewed to get a story out. That's the surface. But in reality, Carson says, Tillis had actually lost all ability to be in control, and this would, quote, make him crazy. My thought is that Tillis may have believed he could control everyone and everything around him. 
so much so that he confessed to a gruesome crime, fully believing that he could convolute and confuse the issue enough so that it would eventually result in his ability to walk on all charges when all was said and done. His story about wanting to commit suicide by the state because he was so despondent about possibly being sentenced to 30 years in prison makes little sense. First of all, he had not yet been tried on the assault charge, so it was anybody's guess on whether he would be convicted of the most serious charges or what his sentence would be at the conclusion. Case in point, a mistrial was declared during the initial trial on these charges, and then the state offered a plea bargain when the defense was able to prove the case had been compromised by prosecutors. Tillis had been around the legal system long enough to know that no case was open and shut. There are many avenues defense attorneys can seek to provide a more favorable outcome for their clients. I really doubt Tillis would have traded an assault charge for a murder charge without a well-thought-out endgame in mind. So my theory goes something like this. He decided to confess without actually confessing to a more serious crime by using a jailhouse informant to provide information to the police. In this way, he could create plausible deniability. He never specifically stated that he had killed Joni Gunter. He merely implied it in the recording. He then later blamed the actual murder on his brother, only admitting to having knowledge about the location of the body. He could claim that he had this information because he had helped his brother by burying it. Later, he could explain away the details about holding women captive and trafficking them for sex by claiming that it was just jailhouse bragging. Meanwhile, he may have believed that the assault charges would be dropped, as they were, when prosecutors were faced with charging him with the more serious crime of murder. And I believe that Tillis thought he was smart and wily enough to even be let off the murder charge because, in truth, what actual evidence did they have that he had killed Joni Gunter? There were no reports that I'm aware of that connected Tillis to Joni before her death. The prosecutor's only claim was that Tillis and Joni, quote, had frequented the same areas as one another in Jacksonville. Tillis would know that after so much time had passed, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to extract useful evidence from the body. Remember, this happened in Florida, where it gets very hot and very humid. Decomposition would occur quickly in these conditions. I think Tillis believed that once the assault charges were dropped, the prosecution would go after him for the murder, but ultimately be unable to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Many witnesses reported Tillis bragging about getting away with criminal activity, outsmarting the cops, and skating on charges. Call the police because your ass is mine, Tillis was quoted as saying to a fed-up neighbor. He told another that he, quote, cooks meth and hides it down the road, so I'll never get caught. And according to an article in the Daily Beast, Tillis has no charges on his record for the use or distribution of meth, even though family members and others say they know for a fact that he did both. Claude Tillis said that his brother even bragged that detectives across the street were watching him, and yet, quote, I'm still making meth every day. Tillis accused another neighbor of snitching about code violations on his property by approaching her angrily and shouting, Hey, bitch, you think you got me, but I didn't get arrested. It's apparent through these reports and others that Tillis felt he was smart enough to avoid punishment for his crimes. Tillis had an oversized ego and just enough brains about the law to think up a crazy harebrained scheme in an attempt to avoid conviction. But he lacked basic knowledge regarding human nature, so didn't realize that a jury would never allow someone who had a dismembered body buried in their backyard the chance to go free. They decided against the death penalty by a slim margin, maybe because they were somewhat swayed by the abuse he allegedly suffered as a child. But according to testimony, his brother was also abused by their father and other family members, 
And while also troubled in his youth, Claude Tillis became a law-abiding citizen who owned and ran an auto body shop and supported a family. Russell Tillis, it's clear, went a different way, following in his father's footsteps. Tillis claimed his father was a violent bully and a sex offender. Russell Tillis was a chip off the old block. The jury recognized this, and while they may have sympathized somewhat regarding his upbringing, they understood that it was Tillis's choice to become a victimizer of others. Let me know what you think. Does my theory hold any water? Did Tillis take a gamble and plan to double-cross the cops to wriggle out of a murder charge? Or is there some other explanation for his actions in leading police to Joni Gunter's body? To give your theories, go to the Once Upon a Crime website at truecrimepodcast.com to send me an email or a voice message, or join the conversation on our Facebook fan page. Just look for Once Upon a Crime Podcast fan page on Facebook. Facebook. Thanks for coming back to join me for Season 6. Make sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And I'll be back next Monday with another chapter of Buried Truth. Don't forget, you can now text me at 408-676-1770. Enter OUAC to opt in to receive and send text to us and also to get in on our fifth anniversary giveaway drawing. Just text the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770. Good luck. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan, and final sound mix is by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.